Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. This week, we are discussing the newest phenomena to concern markets and clients in 2021, stagflation. I'm David Thorpe, Special Project Editor at FT Advisor. Stagflation is the condition of markets experiencing weak economic growth at the same time as inflation is materially above average. This creates a conundrum for policymakers and investors as the tools at their disposal are suited either to combating low growth or fighting high inflation, but not typically both at the same time. But what does this mean for investors and the outlook for markets? Joining me to discuss the topic are Fahad Kamal, Chief Investment Officer at Kleinworth Hambrose, Alan Higgins, Managing Director and UK Chief Investment Officer at Coots, and James Dow, who runs the Scottish American Investment Trust at Bailey Gifford. Thank you all for joining me. Alan, we'll come to you first for the first question. The particular threat of stagflation is that it combines higher inflation with lower economic growth. How should one think about asset allocation in, in that environment? Thank you, David. I'm glad you defined stagflation because there's not one precise definition. In fact, going back to the 70s, it was actually a recession and in inflation. And I'm glad you defined it more re- realistically as slower economic growth and inflation. So, um, well, look, inflation's here, clearly, a- absolutely. Um, and maybe we can talk later whether it's going to persist or not. Um, as for slow growth, firstly, uh, growth will be slower next year than this year. That's highly likely. But whether you look at private sector or official forecast, economic growth looks reasonably healthy. So we're, we're, we're cutting a bit of straws, David, in terms of this stagflation, but I get it because inflation dominates. So, um, frankly, it makes in, let's take it to an extreme. Let's say the, the forecasts are wrong and growth is much, much slower, and we do have this persistent inflation. Frankly, it does make investing you know, quite troublesome because one of the basic building blocks of portfolio construction bonds become very problematic, or arguably already problematic. And of course, then slower growth starts to eat into equity return, equity, corporate margins and potentially equity returns. Um, for us, we would stick with equities, what did we learn from March 2020 in particular, for example? Equities are very long-term cash flows. They can see through a short period of uncomfortable, slow growth. And, and so sticking with equities, yes, we're long overdue a correction. So maybe it might be buying into this correction. But basically, we'd be on the equity side of the balance sheet. Thank you. Uh, James, there you go. Perfectly teed up for you. You were, you were brought on today to be the uh, to defend equities against all comers. And uh, Alan's already done it for you. But as an equity manager, equity income manager, indeed, how do you think about this uh, question? The income side of the side of the ledger is probably pressured by inflation being higher and maybe client expectations being higher. But at the same time, the economic growth may, may not be there. What, what parts of the equity market look, look interesting in, in that context? What I think it requires is for investors to focus on specific types of equities. So specifically, uh, equities that have a really good shot at growing their earnings and dividends ahead of inflation, you know, real growth. Not all equities actually can do that. Some are in decline, some are sort of on proxies, not really going anywhere. But there are lots of 
equities, lots of companies out there that even in a period of slower growth and higher inflation, because of the unique trajectory they're on, a new product, the, the life cycle of that, some kind of rejuvenation, whatever it might be, have a really good shot at delivering real growth, earnings and dividends, even through a tougher economic environment. And if as an investor, you're focused very much on those, and certainly what I focus on for Saints, um, you should be much better positioned than some of the other assets you can invest in to weather this slower growth, higher inflation environment. They they should still um, perform quite well. Their appeal to investors may may even go up through such a period. Um, they'll, they'll look ever more attractive. So that that that's very much the, the focus I'd be recommending that that real growth bottom up approach. Thank you, uh, Fahad. Um, do you share Alan and James's? Uh, enthusiasm for for equities or are there other asset classes that you're that you're looking at in the current climate as as maybe uh, being being attractive well thank you for having me david um i think i i do share the enthusiasm for equities but slight probably for a different reason um and I, not that you invited me here as a disruptor but but here here, here we are effectively I mean, I, I sort of reject the premise of the questions, right? Because I don't think that we are in a stagflationary environment at all. I mean, Alan did start off by saying, well, what does stagflation even mean? So if you take it to mean something that we, you know, something that looks like the 1970s, we're nowhere close. Okay. And probably something, uh, you know, an objective way to define that would be the misery index, right? So you take the unemployment rate, you add it to the inflation rate. And if you're, in the 20% range, like we were in the in the in the 1970s, that is a truly secular stagnation, a stagflation environment, right? Where it's not just a blip, and okay, we've got high inflation today, but it's a persistent thing that lasts for a number of quarters, if not years. Um, we're nowhere near that right now. Yeah, sure, we've got an inflation surge, um, but growth is still extremely healthy, as Alan alluded to. Um, and the inflation surge, in my opinion, will will be transitory. And, you know, whatever that, you know, how transitory remains to be seen. But by next year, probably towards the end of next year, we expect inflation to come back down to trend in most places. The UK might be a notable exception, given some idiosyncrasies. But, but you know, in the US, in Europe, um, in Japan, in, in China, we do expect inflation to come back down to trend. So that's that's one. We don't think that there's that there is necessarily a stagflationary environment, anything close to that. But you have alluded to the other part, where which I do agree with, that we are going to be embarking on what looks like a very long-term decades of low growth. Um, there's only been traditionally two forms, you know, two ways to have growth. One of them is had to have more people. We don't have that. Our demographics are really poor. The other way is to have more productivity. And while the recent, um, you know, figures on productivity are encouraging, it's still it's not not enough to overcome the demographic uh, decline that we see effectively everywhere. So we are going to be in a period of long, slow growth, probably also, you know, pretty low, tepid inflation. And in an environment like that, like everybody else has said, I mean, really, equities are your best are your best bet to find the right companies that are managing to grow their dividends, to grow their um, uh, to grow their earnings, that are able to be um, you know to have a to have a good hold on their marketplace, etc. It's all the things that we all look for. But equities are the right game in town, um, I think, for the long term uh, because they are probably the best defense against you know against what is likely to be a very sluggish environment and fixed income across the spectrum is not likely to cut it. Thank you. 
Uh, thank you for that, Fahad. Uh, James, one of the uh, one of the trends in in recent years is of income investors and money market participants seeing uh, deriving income from capital gains as a viable route um, over the longer term. What do you think of that, and does does stagflation change that that equation? Yes, I think it does potentially change that equation, or at least, you know, it's been really quite a long time now since anyone's been through a multi-year low growth bear market, right? I mean, even the the pandemic drop was, you know, blink and you miss it kind of thing before equities came roaring back. So if we do go into a period where there's much lower growth, there's higher inflation in this stagflation scenario we're talking about, um, there, there is a good chance that people will be staring at um, diminished returns, low returns, falling capital values across risk assets. That's definitely a, a possibility. In that environment, I can only think that, yes, people who have been selling capital to raise income will be questioning that approach. You know, It's going to feel a lot more uncomfortable, particularly if it's been going on not for three months, six months, but for a period of years. Um, and it doesn't it will feel quite uncomfortable, I think, for some people to be repeatedly selling capital to generate income through a market like that. So, yes, I think that it will likely lead to a reevaluation of that approach. It's different for different individuals where they are in their sort of life cycle. For some people, it will still make sense if you're decumulating, whatever it might be. But I think what it will probably lead to is a reappreciation of the value of assets that can generate a good natural income. <laughs> that don't require you to be persistently selling capital instead to 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 fund that income gap. Thank you. Um, Fahad, in general, is is, is your, your approach and, and do you think about using capital um, to fund income uh, an attractive approach? And does that change in the in the world that you that you see in front of us of, of lower growth? Yeah, I, I I do. I mean, you know, as we've said, that the return, the, you know, the dividends, uh, you know, from from equity markets are, in my opinion, likely to be, you know, higher than those that you can find on, uh, you know, in, investment grade companies are still likely to be higher than those that you're going to get from government bonds, etc. So there's still a preference towards the equity market, even just for a pure income investor, right? So I, I think that that's that's true now. That's going to be remain to be true for quite some time. Though I think the bigger you know point is that yes you know absolutely there was a time you know twenty years ago where if you were, you know depending on your financial needs you could you know if you if you were getting a stream of five six seven percent in terms of income you know that that sort of met the needs and you carried on to get five six seven percent for the next twenty years is near on impossible right I mean twenty years ago you could get five percent by by putting your money in the high street bank uh, today to get five percent you've got to lend to the government of Iraq. So the the risk paradigm has completely changed. Um, so anyway, in that environment, you've got to if you are still if you still need five percent, you cannot you can no longer rely purely on an income stream, or you'd have to take a lot of risk. Therefore, you have to have capital as part of the equation. You've got to hopefully have uh, some growth elements in your portfolio where that capital element is growing in such a fashion that it you know it sort of helps offset this lack of dividends and the lack of income that you know we used to we used to rely on that is a reality of having a of having a, a low growth paradigm you know you've got to find somewhere else to get that five percent now um 
it's easier said than done, right? I mean, where are we going to find these great growth companies for the next 20 years? You know, you, if, if you're buying, if you think that tech is still where it's at and you're buying them at 30 times earnings, if, you know, th- there, is a, there is a valuation um, the sort of uh, headwind to that as well. And there's the challenge, actually. It's not easy. Making sure that you've got the right mix of capital and income, um, you know, in order to sustain your life, you know, your, your goals is um, is the great challenge of our day, actually. I don't think there is an easy answer to it, but certainly whatever answer there is has to include some degree of capital uh, appreciation and not just a reliance on some income stream. Thank you. Um, Alan, I'm sure you have many uh, clients that have income as a focus. How do you think about all of these uh, these questions? We do, uh, and we encourage our clients to break away from that old style of living off an income from investments because you just can't. Because if you break it down, uh, I used to be a fixed income a portfolio manager, and uh, you know when uh, the, the time when Farhad was talking about when yields were much higher, then you could because the fixed income component uh, was attractive, nominal and real. So it's it's a real struggle on this key component. Um, putting that to one side, um, on the equity side, when did income investing work? Only one time, really, actually, when income was correlated with quality. What do I mean by that? So the income stocks tended to be higher quality. And, and, and in particular, they tended to be a growing dividend, happily off a higher base. So what we would look uh, for investors to focus on is, one, um, sadly accept having to live off capital if you have to draw down. Um, many Coots clients, of, of course, are, are fortunate enough not to, to have to draw down, but some are, and and some of our, our, our customers in NetWest certainly do. And it's mentally coming to terms with living off capital, which is somewhat behavioural. And then on the equity side, and to a certain extent, some special situations you can see in investment trusts, for example, a growing dividend stream, a growing income stream. A growing income stream is much more valuable than a high dividend it's associated with quality companies, all the companies from Nestle in Switzerland. Uh, these are not recommendations uh, to, uh, I don't know, Coca-Cola in the States with Warren Buffett's famous for buying, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, 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 and there are some interesting both companies and investment trusts that have a growing dividend stream. Thank you. Uh, James, it seems uh, appropriate to come to you, to you next as an income investment trust manager. Um, so no pressure there then. Um, the one of the the, the uh, phenomena in the market over the past decade has been the move, perhaps, of uh, investors who used to be in those bonds, getting five percent lending to the to the British government into equities, but into particular types of equities, perhaps indeed into some of the equities that that Alan mentioned in his remarks. Um, but what is the outlook for those often called high quality, sometimes called bond uh, proxy? Type equities are they of uh, are they of interest um, to you uh, at at the moment in a world of higher bond yields, but also they do have perhaps pricing power and certainly uh, durability. Yes, the, and I completely agree with Alan that that is the the way to go. The the focus on dividend growth rather than yield, which is a trap in many different ways, in in, in my opinion, and it's and it's. Certainly, the focus um, for a long time now of Saints is that kind of lower yield but growing, and, and 
proper businesses that actually have a bright future and you get capital growth as well. And, and I think the, the prospects for those are at, those kind of businesses are actually pretty good. And, and one of the most, I think, exciting things that's happened past, let's say, 10 or 15 years is that the, the opportunity set, if you like, the universe of those has opened up quite a lot. Like a lot more companies have recognized the value of paying a growing dividend. And then globally, the, the, the universe has opened up a lot as well. So there are lots and lots of opportunities out there, I think, for to find these high quality growing div dividends from cash generative businesses. So um, a, a couple that spring to mind when we're thinking about this sort of stagflation environment. Um, uh, in the pharmaceutical space, there's a, a diabetes um, treatment maker, obesity treatment maker as well, Novo Nordisk. Um, if you look back over time, very high quality company, very well managed, cash generative, has structural growth opportunities in the treatments that, you know, ever more diagnoses, innovation within its products, and a commitment to paying a growing dividend. So that sort of investment and of which there are many now available around the world, looks really attractive, especially attractive in, in a period where there's perhaps lower economic growth. But that company has its own sort of unique trajectory that it's on to grow its earnings, grow its dividends, um, has really quite bright prospects ahead of it. Um, carbon reduction, another area that everyone's talking about, we're starting to see some companies that should be able to participate in that and grow their earnings and dividends on the back of that. Certain um, transmission distribution companies, for example, you can invest in the equity, their regulated asset base is growing as they're bringing on more uh, renewable energy. Um, that's growing their earnings and potentially growing their dividends. So the short version is, is that there are a lot of these companies out there when you look globally, and some of them have really fantastic prospects ahead of them for kind of long-term uh, earnings and dividend growth, even in this you know, the environment we're talking about of potentially lower growth and higher inflation. Thank you. Um, Fahad, in, in, the, in, the, in the world ahead of us with, with all its challenges, what role, if any, do you see for bonds in, in, um, in client portfolios, um, particularly if we have uh, much higher inflation and lower growth? So look, the role for bonds, there's two. there's been two traditional roles, right? One of them has been income. We can forget about that because we think the income from bonds is going to be very low for a very long time. Even as rates are rising, we don't expect them to rise very much. So that, you know, the, the income portion is done. The other thing has been protection. That's the other reason people hold them. And there is still a case to be made for protection. The reason why I say that is if you take just the gilt, you know, 10-year gilt yield now, I'd give or take 1%, one, 1% one, 1 and some 1%, call it, you know, in when the crisis hit last year, the pandemic gilt yields fell down to 20 basis points, right? So there was an 80 basis point compression that allowed for some protection and for some offset from what was a really difficult time in the equity market. So in that sense, purely, you know, mathematically, there is a case, right? Just just from that sense. However, it's not a great case. <laughs> let, me, let me put it that way. We still hold some government bonds in our portfolios. The ones that we hold are higher duration. Basically, providing us just that—that that in the event there is a real crisis, we do see at, from these yields some room for yield compression. That's true in the UK. That's true in the US. That's not so true in Europe um, or Japan because at the, at the very you know negative yields there, there's effectively no room for compression. 
So there is um, that is a reality. So in 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 our U.S. and our U.K. strategies, we still have we still have government bonds, not very many, but the ones that we do have a higher duration, purely for a protection element. Now, in years past, we would have played all of our protection by government bonds, but because they are so unattractive right now, they have a much smaller, narrower role, and we are holding more unconventional assets in standard portfolios for protection such as gold such as hedge funds which are which are protected uh, you know protective hedge funds and um, uh, and we even you know we've even gone as far as to doing some sort of very um, uh, sort of a put option type strategies uh, in one of our strategies just to find other offsets for protection that government bonds used to provide us but don't provide nearly as much anymore so we're diversifying our diversifiers and Alan, Fahad's uh, talked about how government bonds may not be income, but they, they may be protection. Uh, is, is that how you see it in, in portfolios? And, uh, you know, it, it's a high price to pay for that protection, but is there simply no alternative than to own some government bonds of some kind in all portfolios? Yeah, um, look, it's hard to find alternatives, as Fahad said. I mean, uh, it's good diversify by all means, but those kind of, hedge funds that can protect you on the downside or at least be somewhat neutral when risk assets fall they're, they're, they're pretty hard to find one um so government bonds do uh, due to their negative negative correlation at least so far or so far i say the last 25 years or so uh, that there, there is some attraction from that negative correlation but it is a high price to pay but I, but it is a lot cheaper than buying put options um buying put options leads you open to two risks one just timing so just so very difficult uh if if the odd hero that times it right fantastic they buy a put option and time it and the second way of doing it of course is just continually buy put options and that tends to be a losing trade especially if we're getting technical with the geeks put options are much more expensive than call options so-called skew um so you really pay up for those put options, because guess what? That's what everyone wants, some kind of upside with some protection. So pretty hard. Um, so I suppose that's kind of a message out there is that if if there are interesting funds or strategies that are negatively correlated with equities, they become very valuable. Negatively correlated may be pushing it too much or at least um, low correlation with equities, but they're hard to find. Thank you. Um, James, you, you find yourself on a, on a panel with, uh, with people who all agree equities are, are uh, a great place to be, Lovely. but it's probably worth unpacking uh, with all of you. Uh, where, you know, how does one slice and dice the equity markets that are out there to uh, find those attractive opportunities? Do you think about things geographically or sectorally or thematically, or is it purely valuation based? Well, for me, it's it's very much sort of one company at a time. It's what 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 is this particular company I'm looking at? What is their growth trajectory? What is going to be driving their earnings? Do I, do I want to back the the management team behind this company? And it's it's stock by stock working your way through. Um, I personally not a big believer that you can sort of make sweeping generalizations about ah all chemicals is going to go up in a straight line. It does, unfortunately it doesn't work like that. So it's it's very much stock by stock. 
Um, I think one thing that is um, interesting right now to think about is the huge opportunity in um, dividend paying and, and growing companies in China. China is definitely not flavor of the month at the moment for a variety of reasons. It's a noisy market. Those things are happening. But if you're if you're a long term investor and you're interested in growth and you're also interested in um, good cash returns, there's more than a thousand dividend paying stocks that you can access now in the Chinese market. And let's think about what more people there's a lot of fretting about Chinese growth has slowed to 5%. Now, if we turn that on its head and we imagine we were sitting here in the UK and saying, oh, shucks, you know, growth has slowed to only 5%. You know, we'd be biting each other's hands off to invest in, in, in companies that could, could, could prosper in that environment. So you've, you've, you've still got a really quite interesting growth environment. Um, productivity continues to rise, tech innovation, proper companies that are investing back into themselves, but often paying out a good dividend as well. So right now, I think a particularly fertile hunting ground is the huge Chinese dividend paying market in a, in a, in a stagflation. But back, back to the start, it's, it's always going to be stock by stock in you know, one, one company at a time. Thank you. Alan, when you think about equities, how do you, uh, how do you allocate to them and how do you, uh, how do you find your, your long lists, your short lists, and then eventually your buy lists? What's the, what's the process? So at Coots, we have a blended approach. We do have some direct stocks, but also active funds. And also um, we have fairly heavy user, at least in, in the wealth management industry, of passive funds, which, uh, you know, could be a whole separate podcast. Um, so that's how we go about it. And uh, very mixed. We're both a regional investor and a global equity investor, like a lot of people these days. So we will target certain markets. So, for example, right now, overweight Japan. Um, but also we will own standard global equity uh, funds that, uh, that, that, that are well known out there. So that's the, the way we would go about it. I would just to, rev- to pivot back to fixed income, because we didn't really talk about risk seeking fixed income. That, uh, although that was a huge opportunity after March 2020, arguably a bigger opportunity than even um, equities um, for a brief while, we still think there is attractive income from taking the other side of fears of largely dissipated now, but fears of banks collapsing. So subordinated financial debt is still, is, you're still paid a premium, not as much as you used to be. Um, we once owned Lloyd's 7%, for example. I can talk about these because they're mid, mid, now matured. So you got paid 7% per year by Lloyd's, provided they didn't go bust. Now, um, that was an o- oversized risk premium. So there are, you know, just moving away from equities a bit to balance it a bit, risk-seeking fixed income. You have to work hard, but there are still small elements you can look for. And importantly, when there is the next risk-off, the next sell-off in equity markets, credit will sell off as well, including bonds like Lloyd Sevens, if they haven't matured. Uh, and that's when you want to get involved. Uh, it's quite hard, of course, because there'll be some kind of crisis, maybe fears of a trade war between UK and eurozone or whatever uh, that the fears will be but that will be a a chance for individual investors to look at risk-seeking fixed income and and capture much higher yields thank you um fahad how do you uh, 
framework, Ambrose, think about uh, equity allocations right now? You're, you're broadly positive as per your, your earlier answers, but, but how does that break down into allocating for different risk profiles and, and client types? So look, obviously each client is, is just different, is bespoke. We have some that are allocated via direct equity mandates and, and for those we have an approach similar to I think what James has been describing. It's very case by case, company by company. You know, we're looking at, at the ability to uh, for a company to grow its earnings, but also for it to be reasonably priced. Now, what is reasonably priced? Uh, we can uh, we can do yet another, a third <laughs> podcast on, 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 on that question alone. But um, but that's the basic strategy there. But also, as Alan mentioned, we do a lot of, um, depending on the clients, there's a lot of clients for which um, just pure, simple ETFs are right. There's other clients in which a blend of passive and actives are right. There's 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 a range, right? So, so but I think probably in the main, um, ge- geographically is how we would we would uh, look at uh, the equity world for your for your standard plain vanilla client. Um, and in that world right now, we are underweight in the U.S. after many years of having been overweight. And we are overweight most of the other regions in the world, i.e. Europe, Japan, uh, the U.K. as well. Um, uh, and and, uh, and having been underweight in those areas for a very long time. So why are we doing that now? Largely because, you know, you either believe in valuation or you don't. And we do. And the U.S. is extremely expensive, no matter how you cut it. And the future gains from you know from thirty times valuations in tech have you know are, are limited if you know by any historic measure. And on the other hand, you've got obviously a very nice growth paradigm in markets right now. Um, there's upside there, and regions like the U.K. and Japan and um, and Europe tend to be more procyclical and they're cheaper. So that's how we are viewing uh, the equity complex at present. Thank you. Fahad, you, you mentioned um, in, in your answer that you're uh, overweight UK. Um, that, that must be relatively lonely. But um, how should clients in the UK think about a world in which UK interest rates rise? Maybe when I when I wrote this question, that that seemed like a, a far away a far away notion. I think people have even forgotten that interest rates can rise as well as fall. But um, of events in in recent days and, and comments from. Andrew Bailey at the Bank of England and, and others indicate that maybe a UK interest rate rise may be closer at hand than many had expected. How would that uh, impact how, how you think about um, portfolios going forward? Look, for, for, for lack of, you know, for not, I'm trying not to make sweeping generalizations, but generally speaking <laughs> here, the UK is one of those markets that's probably more robust to interest rate right, right, raises than anywhere else. A, it's a very value driven market it's very financials heavy those will do very well in the environment where we've got rising interest rates also if you think that rising interest rates are happening in a you know in an environment of generally robust growth or positive growth then the other sectors that are predominant in the uk should also do well energy uh, materials etc so all in all a, a rate rise is is much less of a threat you know, to the UK equity market than it would be, for example, to the US market, which is with a heavier preponderance in, in, in growth companies. Thank you, Fahad. I think sweeping generalizations are, are my job as the as the journalist. So don't don't muscle in on my racket. Um Alan, how do you think about UK UK rate rises happening tomorrow or, or something? What would what would what would be the top of the, the Alan Higgins to-do list when you get in? Not much, because they're going to go from 0.1, a miserly 0.1, to 
two five unless they really surprise us and take us to the incredible interest rate of 0.5 so look as a, as an ex-bond investor these are ridiculously low interest rates and bond yields whichever way you look at it so um i'm not going to be too excited but as far as the interesting point that uk being such a value market it may have less impact on uh, we don't have the long duration cash flows like uh, like James has exposure to in in his fund, um, so yes, the the the, fact, the the energy sector will be obviously much more correlated with oil. As simple as that. Interest rates almost irrelevant, and and the banks will be uh, well uh, rejoicing that might be pushing it, but it's embracing higher rates. So um, less of an impact, I suppose, from our perspective. Again, if you want to, a relatively controversial view, um, sterling could well be a strong currency. Um, I can remember um, sterling rising from about 135 to 212 versus the dollar relentlessly between 02 and 07 every year. So every for sterling-based mandates, every time you invested overseas, it was like having Swiss franc-denominated uh, mandates. You lost money every time. People forget that um, you can lose money from from investing from a sterling base yes it's a long-term depreciation so it's interesting to see sterling pretty strong against the yen and the euro uh, and flat versus the dollar and, and i wonder if we could see the amount of mna in the uk market and interest in property again we could see we could see quite a strong currency actually sterling thank you uh james i know you're on a you're on a global mandate so uh, you, you can react to higher interest rates in the uk by just ignoring it and you know going somewhere else but and one of the challenges it would it pose a challenge for you as an income investor um that you would need to go for things wherever you get them that have a slightly higher yield again in order to uh compensate for the equity risk for your uk based clients who could get you know 0.25 at the bank instead of 0.01 would that mean that you would need to find higher higher slightly higher income payers in the trust no, I, I don't think so. I think the, the, the question always to ask, well, look, look here's, here's an interesting thought experiment. Right? Let, let's sit here and suppose that two or three years from now, we're all sitting around the table and we're looking at a 10-year gilt, which is much higher than it is today, percentage terms, people you know, starting to discount persistently higher inflation. In that environment, um, what are the assets that we'll be happy to own? that we'll be still be thinking, look, I, I, I still really like this as an investment on a long-term view is going to be, do, do the job that I, I wanted to do. I think in that environment, then um, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, companies which have good, solid, long-term growth prospects are growing their earnings and dividends ahead of inflation that are somewhat isolated from the ups and downs of the, the, the global economy will continue to look very attractive. If you have been investing in you know, X growth, boring, um, troubled companies, then I'm sure that you will look back at that point in time and say, gosh, maybe it wasn't such a good idea hanging on to those. But as long as you've got that continued focus on you know, good, high quality cash generative companies for the long term, I think you'll do absolutely fine. Thank you for that, James. And thank you to Fahad Kamal, Chief Investment Officer at Climate Hamrose. Alan Higgins, Chief Investment Officer for the UK at Coots, and James Dow, Manager 
of the Scottish American Investment Trust at Bailey Gifford. And thank you all for listening. Tune in next time for another edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.